0: My name's Brad uh, Watson, and uh, I'm new to L.A., and I'm new to this church, but they're letting me uh, preach a lot, which is real thankful. I'm really thankful for that, just the opportunity to speak about uh, who God is and what He's done. And right now, we're in the middle of a series on the Minor Prophets, Uh, and if you want, uh, back in the back, we actually have cool scripture reading cards. I think they're still there, maybe. I don't see them now that I'm looking. They're there? Cool. Cool. Uh, It goes through all the way to Christmas Eve will be in the uh, Minor Prophets, these 12 books of the Bible. They're all pretty small. They're uh, really right there next to the New Testament if you're having problems finding it. Also, there's no shame anytime we're doing this to look in the table of contents of your Bible to find the book that we're talking about because they're that uh, sort of obscure. You know, uh, the other day... Casey and I were uh, having coffee. He makes really good pumpkin spice coffee somehow. And uh, we got to start talking about uh, rappers and songs and lyrics. And it was really great because we both went back and forth naming rappers we had never heard of. Uh, I would say, have you heard of this guy? And he's like, no, have you heard of this guy? No, and that's kind of what the minor prophets are like. (laughs) Uh, the minor prophets uh, are the socially conscious rappers of the Bible. <laughs> That's really who they are. And Amos, which we're studying today, is the best example of that. Uh, Amos was a fig tree farmer, which is an actual profession 2,500 years ago, and even till, still today. He was also a shepherd. He wasn't part of any religious class. Uh, he wasn't a, a, you know, a professional Religious person, uh, but he was a a wonderful prophet that really gives the best example of the socially conscious rapper of the Bible. Um, He came about uh, in a time of great wealth, of great security, and the people of Israel, they had made good treaties, they had fought off uh, invaders, they had sort of established themselves pretty well, and for many people that led to lots of wealth. But in many cases, it led to intense apathy towards the oppressed and then just sort of outright oppression. And so if we can turn to begin uh, in Amos chapter 2, uh, verse 6, is pretty much the best example of this sort of conscious rapping that he does as he calls out the injustice of the time. And this is what he says. He says, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the other way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Uh, Here, uh, Amos doesn't sort of sugarcoat what's happening. Uh, If just to sort of dive in and explain uh, in case you have missed it which is often what I have to do when I'm listening to rap, even though it's quickly becoming my favorite form of music. I have to read it multiple times just to understand, oh, in each line, they're talking about me. Uh, That's what I have to do. Uh, That was a joke, but no one was like, like, oh, that's serious. in verse seven, when he sa- or verse six, when he says that they sell the righteous for silver, uh, something to to understand about the minor prophets is there's two words that get used a lot, and this is cool. You can like use this tomorrow at work at the water cooler. One word is mishpat, the other is sadika. These are pretty cool words. Uh, sadika is justice, mishpat is righteousness, and how it works is. Uh, whenever you see righteousness, what they're talking about is people who live a life that leads towards justice. And justice is not uh, sort of how we think of it in terms of people getting the proper punishment or the proper um, you know, benefits after they've been wronged. Justice in the prophets means a communal Thriving A peace where everyone gets to contribute, everyone's gifts, abilities, uh, personhood is taken at great value. And that often is why you know, we talk about justice the way we do, is because we've tried to create rules that sort of express that. Uh, but in the, the Old Testament, justice is that. That people... Uh, are all in a society, it's a communal reality where everyone not only belongs, but is invited in to belong and thrive. Regardless of how you're born, how you live, ethnicity, whatever, it doesn't matter. And then righteous people are the people who do acts leading towards justice. So a righteous person is someone who takes upon themselves to build into seeing that sort of justice happen. That's what... Uh, Those two words mean And so right here in verse 6 When he says they sell the righteous for silver It's this sort of uh, Damning comment that the people Who are trying to actually uh, Pull the society together And welcome in refugees They're trying to care for the poor They're trying to worship God rightly They're the ones that get sold Into slavery for silver Their, Their lives are taken And disregarded as nothing then the next line he says, "And then the needy are sold for a pair of sandals, uh, meaning that, that the people that are the most oppressed in society, the ones that the righteous are trying to help, that are then sold into slavery, the poor are sold for something far less for sandals, sort of sort of reminding everyone that the value placed on these people is very, very low. So in this, these lines, you see a grotesque violent slavery of their own people of their own neighbors and then he says in verse 7 those who trample on the head of the poor they trample them into the dust of the earth meaning that the marginalized are pressed into the very earth themselves it's image of putting people in their grave it's also an image of creating them to be dead men or dead women walking the, the idea that, that the poor are being so oppressed and so marginalized that no one sees them as a human being. Everyone treats them as if they're already dead on their way to death. And then he says, and then there's those who don't do that, but they turn aside from the way of the afflicted. So there's, there's people who are doing this sort of oppression, and then there's other people turn the other way while it's happening. This is what uh, many people describe Amos as the prophet to the apathetic. Uh, He's talking to the people who who know what's right, who knows what's wrong, they see the problems that are happening in their society and they, they, for whatever reason, and he'll tell us soon, uh, they turn away. And they don't. They don't participate in bringing justice or righteousness. It's kind of... Yeah, sad society, right? Does it remind you of our society in any kind of way? Our global society? And then he says, there's also this reality that a man and a father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. Here he's calling out the reality of intense uh, sexual sins that leads to the abusing the abusing, uh, the prostitution of girls and of women. That, that To describe there's a man and a father go into the same girl is a euphemism for uh, many people using women for their own sexual pleasure. And all the while, this is what uh, begins to, to irk everyone. In verse 8 he says, And they lay themselves beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. Meaning they then go... And bow down and try to find their rest and their security. That whole, like, how do you sleep at night? It's like, oh, they sleep at night by laying down next to the things that they worship. The idols of the land. And then he he goes further. And then some come into the house of their God. And they drink the wine of those who've been fined. So basically they drink the spoils of all the things that they've taken from other people. Where do they do that? They do that in the house of God. All the using that they've done of other people, they go into the place of worship, and that's where they continually consume other people. So Amos lives in a time of terrible injustice. I think everyone here agrees that that sort of society is, is beyond broken but catastrophic and horrible. Right? Marissa's shaking her head. She gets it sorry to call you out. Um, I should not do it by name anymore. But this is this is how I am uh, memorizing people's names. It's by calling people out as I preach. Then it sticks with me. Um, and so, Amos, you know, and you can find similar sections of this sort of uh, ranting against the people and the injustice throughout these nine chapters that you'll read if you get the reading plan. But Amos's response to that, or his challenge of that, is pretty surprising. At least it's surprising on the surface. Because what he does is he challenges their worship. So he, he doesn't challenge their wealth and say, Look, you guys have enough money, you could take care of this. Uh, I don't know if anyone's ever seen that graphic that if Americans stopped eating ice cream and instead put that money towards feeding the hungry, everyone in the world would be fed. Has anyone seen that graphic? It's pretty cool. It's true, I guess. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't say, "Hey, if you have uh, all of, uh, if you just put your money to good use." He doesn't challenge that. He doesn't even challenge their possessions. He doesn't tell them to examine their systems and make them better. He he often will challenge the leaders, but what he challenges them to is to write worship. Not, let's let's overthrow these leaders and get good people in that actually care. What he does is he tells them, you have to examine your worship. Because this is the the huge statement of Amos. Who we worship is directly tied to communal justice. Who we worship and what we worship is completely tied to to our communal justice and righteousness. If you worship anything, he says, other than God, if you worship anything other than God, you will create not just injustice for you or some false sense of worship for you alone as an individual, but if you worship anything other than God, you will create grotesque injustice in society, and you will oppress the people around you. Worship is, just to give a definition, is saying, and believing within the depths of your soul and in your mind and your body and with your actions, it's saying, if I could have that, whatever that is, then I will have meaning and significance and have uh, a sense of value. If I could have that, then everything Uh, Would be good and our worship uh, This guy James K.A. Smith. He wrote a really good book. You are what you love Everyone should read it. I have not read it, but meet has (laughs) And I want to read it I'll have to steal it from her nightstand, but He says in this in his book. You are what you love. He describes the reality of worship this way That you are not defined by what you think but by what you desire your worship, he says, is like an autopilot system. Everyone knows what autopilot is. One day our cars will have it. Uh, right now it's just our planes where, where you basically punch in what your destination is and the plane takes care of getting you where it's supposed to go. Uh, Smith says that your worship is like an autopilot system. It orients us without our thinking about it. Our habits, our decisions, our reactions, our attitudes, our opinions, and everything that we do is guided by what we worship. So your worship doesn't stay within you, it actually moves out of you. So, for example, if if the thing that you want to worship with your life is possessions... If you, if you wake up and you say, you know what, if I could have more possessions, then I'll feel like my life has meaning. The more possessions or the better possessions I have, more meaning. Or if, uh, if I have possessions, then I'll know that I have value. I can gauge how much I have against others. So that's the deep belief of the worship of possessions. But that doesn't stay with you, right? Right? What that does then to have that thing that you idolize and hope to find significance in leads to you doing things like working around the clock so that you can have more money to buy more possessions. It leads to a a fierce anxiety whenever the possessions you have are broken or mishandled. And you lash out and you uh, snap at your children or you snap at your roommates because they messed up your one Possession. It also leads to just the, the ambivalence to how the possessions were created. You know, I don't care if they were made in a, in a sweatshop or if they were brought here illegally or if, or if people were abused in the process. What I care about is if I can get that possession, right? And so in the wake of this whole, oh, I just really love purchasing and having stuff, is a big trail of oppressed people and a society that you're uh, building into its own destruction. Does that make sense? This is like the easiest example, so I went with that one. But it's actually far deeper um, than that. And Amos tells us that there's three types of bad worship, or or two types of bad worship, one type of good worship. Uh, There's idolatry, there's religious hypocrisy, and then there's worship of God. And so we're going to just talk about those three. As uh, as you slowly get more and more convicted about who it is that you actually worship, uh, I'll just say that's kind of my plan. Uh, and in uh, he says here in two eight that we just read, these people that are laying down at the at the altars of of other gods, and this is idolatry, worshiping things that are not God. And so in light of that definition that I just talked about, putting your hopes and dreams and searching for meaning in something, what are things that you worship, this is where you guys talk, what are things that you worship that are not God? And you can feel free to be as specific as possible. We don't have to give generic answers here, but you can give them. Warning, there's going to be a follow-up question in about five minutes. So what is it that you worship? Other than God. Sorry? Relationships. The approval of others.
1: others.
0: Success. Success. What else?
2: Financial security.
0: Financial security. Contentment. Contentment.
1: Personal enhancement.
0: Personal enhancement. Comfort and security. security.
2: Let's say some some meaning of like I'm impacting the world or what I'm doing for a job is like is my passion or like
0: yeah yeah to have um, a life full of meaning saving the world somehow yeah to yeah to what you do with your life be your passion one way or the other hmm. learning and knowledge time. sorry time. time that's a that's an intense one to have because you don't get more of it there's no way to get more of it yeah and so off the bat does anyone see anything terrible about any of those things like, personal enhancement, that's kind of a good thing to have as a human being. Right? Yeah. When is it but when, yeah, when, when is your personal enhancement enough? Yeah. It's kind of like a deep well of unsatisfied desires. Uh, Augustine de- described it as the inward curvature of the soul does this motion whenever he said it. Uh, it means that, that what happens is as we try to find what we're seeking and what we're worshiping, what we do is it just turns in on itself and it's like, you know, it's like a black hole that, you know, is just sort of absorbing everything. If you're into the solar system. That's a good example. See what happens though is that worship of anything other than God always produces, like we said, grave injustice. It creates violence, it, it creates abuse of other people. Idols are not a thing that you just sort of struggle with. Even all these things that we described, relationships, a sense that other people are, are pleased with me, that uh, I enhance myself, that I have financial security. What Amos is saying, if you worship any of those things, it will not just lead to your own, you know, dissatisfaction, but it will lead to... Intense oppression of others. But for example, if you worship uh, friendships or a mentor or some sort of hero, you kind of make that person the object of your worship, which they were never created to be, right? The, a, a friend was never created to be the person that if if that they can give you that sort of meaning and approval and satisfaction, like a person cannot do that, right? But you seek to do that anyway, meaning you'll read into every exchange that you have with them. You will lash out at them when they do not meet your satisfaction. You will even create for yourself a, a false narrative where you kind of lie or pretend about who you are as you engage with them. And you, you begin to belittle other people around you so that that friend thinks that you're a really good friend. So you kind of push the other people that might be in their lives down so that, oh, now I have a really wonderful friend. And, and the person that's talking to them. And in, in the wake of that, even if you say, this relationship is something I want, what you do is you destroy that other person because they will crumble under the, underneath the desires that you have for them. There's no way a person could stand against that sort of scrutiny and longing and desire. Right? And so, uh, I took Phillips. That's, that's an example of how if you were to worship relationships, it would leave behind oppressed people. Uh, so now the follow-up question: Even if you didn't share before, you can share now. How is is worshiping the thing that you worship other than God? How does that oppress other people, or how does that lead to you turning aside from oppression, looking the other way? We're just using
1: people. We're just a consumer.
0: Yeah. For which, which idol, which thing that you're worshiping? Like, what's something that you worship, and then how does it use people? Um,
1: I mean, I could of a hundred examples. I've got a example of my home. I mean, I worship the comfort of my home. I worship the things that I collected mm-hmm. that are pretty. Yeah. Um, and if somebody doesn't treat them with what I think there's respect, mm-hmm. you know, I, don't, I distance myself from that person. I feel like I yeah. I feel, it actually like breaks relationship for me rather right. than just seeing it as my things are used for God's things and right. just, it's like I don't want you back in my house because
0: you're not going to respect my stuff. Right, yeah, so if it is the stuff that we have in our homes for our own comfort and security, we will, yeah, abandon other people if they don't take care of it. Or I can imagine, too, not, I'm not, I've never been in your home, but uh, whenever, we, whenever we worship those things, we uh, fail to invite other people into it. We can't be hospitable, truly, because um, we're thinking, do they really kind of deserve to be in my house? Are they, are they clean enough? Are they whole enough? Right? What else? What's another way that what you worship leads to oppression of other people? Yeah, hope.
2: <laughs> can't be because I
0: need this, this, and this. Right. Before I can do
2: that. Mm-hmm. So even when I see me and I think in my head, like, oh, it'd be so
0: great if I could be generous in that
2: way. Yeah. That idolization and worship of that other thing keeps me at an like, arm's distance
0: from actually. Right. Yeah, totally Which is uh, what Hope is saying If you couldn't hear Is uh, whenever we kind of make possessions The thing that we're worshipping Our own comfort or security We kind of draw the line of Once I get that comfort or security Then I can be generous But all the while There's this double reality of But I'm generous in my heart Right? But it kind of stops when Like I don't have my own security Taken care of You know? Right? And that line just keeps getting pushed Further and further out Right? Um I was blown away by this article I read last night, National Geographic. I promised my wife I wouldn't talk about it. But, uh, (laughs) but, uh, the article was about how Uh, 45% of people in India Do not have toilets to use And sort of all the ramifications of that And so people that have toilets Though still won't use them Because then they become dirty and defiled And they won't let other people use them either Because then it will become very dirty and defiled And And I don't know It's not really very related to you It's just something on my mind I guess But but for us, we think, oh, I need to have two or three bathrooms, and then I can be generous and have a party. Oh, I need to have four, space for four or five couches, and then I could invite people in. Uh, when other parts of the world are just like, if I had a toilet, maybe I could invite someone in, right? Because the, that inward curvature of the soul says it's never going to be enough to do that thing. Yeah. Anyone else want to be brave and share an example? Uh, we'll go with you, Steve, and then Josh. In the
2: financial security. The- devilish sword is I'm always um, there's a temptation not to feel terrible. Hmm. Um whether it's with a, a vendor whether it's with a client whether it's with a tenant mm-hmm. you know there's, it, it hardens the heart to hear um, a plea or a fight for help or, or to hear the Holy Spirit say you know look at this guy breaking, get this guy out Right. You really harden your heart
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, yeah. It definitely lowers that. If we worship financial security, it lowers that bar of how fair we have to be as we deal with other people, or how gracious we have to be. Yeah. You want to go? Yeah. And then Josh.
2: Um, I think comfort to me is the most interesting one because it it distorts the gospel for me, and so I'm able to look. At things that God is calling me to do And doubt them Because they're in conflict with my comfort Mm -hmm. And the idea of sacrificing Or going without In order to be obedient Becomes a more and more distant reality The more that it's in conflict With my own comfort Right. And so whether that's Going to people that are unfamiliar Mm -hmm. You know maybe evangelism is your hang up Maybe giving is your hang up Maybe it's just uh, being a regular part of the community and showing up, mm-hmm. or serving. Whatever it is, if your comfort is a bigger priority then yeah. the ability for God to call you into something which might make you uncomfortable, mm-hmm. right, is going to be in conflict. With right.
0: That. And you
2: either will stop listening, or maybe you'll even doubt that what mm-hmm. you're hearing is the Spirit.
0: Right. Yeah. Definitely. That if, if comfort is the thing that we worship, it, it creeps into to, as doubts, like you said. Uh, did God really say that I'm supposed to do that? Which really brings up a, a very interesting point, which is idols do not want an exclusive relationship with you. So... Financial security does not want an exclusive relationship with you, where you're, like, the, the, the god of financial security or comfort or possessions is not saying, you can only worship me. That was kind of one of the ways that was so confusing for the people of Israel. It's like, well, all of our neighbors get to worship tons of things. We, only, we can only worship one. But, but idols are content with you having many voices. They just want to have a voice into your life. Now, they don't care if you're trying to worship God and them. They just want to have a voice whispering in your ear. But there's also this. Uh, Just like uh, the serpent in the Garden of Eden. Did God really tell you you couldn't have that? Surely God is withholding from you because you could also have this, right? Yeah, and so that's how uh, our idols work. Our worship of all of these other things has deep consequences. The consequences are not just personal. Oh, sorry, Josh, you were going to share Sure. sure. Yes.
1: Cool. Um, so my most personal enhancement. And the question, the prompt is like, how does this wreak injustice on people? Yeah. Um, it makes me judgmental and impatient with other people and their suffering. Um, and if I'm going to help, I first think, what have you been doing? Mm-hmm. How you've been working to improve? Yeah. Oh, you've been doing nothing. Well, what would you expect? Like, it turns me into this like it's arrogant it's like the deeper level is arrogance because it's basically like I'm the standard mm-hmm. and I also can evaluate somehow right the level of effort and wisdom to improve your situation right um
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah it's just it just makes you and then I think at the the final stage it just makes you cold mm-hmm. like really cold hearted towards other people where you just you're like oh you're suffering well yeah you didn't make good decisions that's unfortunate I hope it gets better mm-hmm I just kinda
0: like, yeah, it's pretty bad. Yeah, but it, yeah because if you're, you expect other people to worship the same thing. Like, why aren't you enhancing yourself? If you enhance yourself, then I can help you. Then I can be patient with you. Yeah, which is very deep. But all of that um, leads to a reality where it's not just some sort of cute thing that we kind of like struggle with. Like, oh gosh, you know, I just love my children too much. What it actually leads to, and especially that one, loving our children too much, worshipping how they uh, could be. What ends up happening, though, is that we sell them into slavery. We sell other people into slavery. These lines are lines for us uh, as we enact injustice through worshipping of other things. We turn aside from the afflicted for all of these things, and then we also simultaneously trample the poor into the ground, trample the vulnerable The marginalized. The other thing that he says, the other false worship, is religious hypocrisy. And uh, if we turn to chapter four, uh, verse four and five, you get to see a great taste of biblical sarcasm. In this, in these two verses, he says, "Come to Bethel, which is a temple that they created for themselves in Jerusalem, uh, in Israel. They, the Israel and Judah backstory, split kingdoms. They had their own sort of civil war." And in Israel, they, they sort of laid outside of Jerusalem, which is the only true place to worship God. And so what they did in Israel, the kings and the rulers there said, well, how about we create new temples? That way, people don't go to Jerusalem and then see how good it is there. We need to make our own temples. And so those temples are Bethel and Gilgal, places where they built golden calves, and then they just sort of added a bunch of idols alongside them. And so he says here, he says, come to Bethel and transgress." Come to Gilgal and multiply transgressions. Bring your sacrifices every three days, every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving uh, of that which is leavened and proclaim free will offerings. Publish them, for so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord. Here he, he calls out false worship of God. It's, it's to use God and to use other people under the pretense of faithfulness to God. It's to, to take, oh, I'm outwardly worshiping God as a means to securing your own power and control and security over other people. Here he's saying, yeah, go into these places of worship and just multiply your sin there. Uh, here he's saying, you can go worship things uh, that have my name on it. But what you're doing there is you're simply adding sin to it. Here also, he says, you can bring your sacrifice every morning, your tithes every three days. And What's interesting, though, is he says, offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving and proclaim free will offerings. These are offerings that you come and say, everything's going really well in my life. Here's one to you, God. It's like the, the equivalent of... The guy, like, kneeling after a touchdown. Or the rock star saying on their thank you things in the album, which I guess they don't have anymore. But saying, all to God, right? It's saying, hey, these Thanksgiving offerings are, everything's going so well for me. I'm such a good person. Here's some tips for you, God. Because, you know, without you, none of this would have been possible. Thanks for giving me the music lessons and the physical abilities to be much stronger and bigger than everyone else. But what that exposes, because there's also other offerings, there's other sacrifices for forgiveness, for cleansing, for holiness. What Amos is saying very cleverly here is you know, keep bringing those offerings about how good you are, keep doing it. And he even says publish them because you love to do it. You love for other people to see how good you're doing at this following of God thing, but it will multiply your sins. And you're never coming and offering and asking for God's forgiveness of you. You're never coming to God saying, I'm dirty, I'm unwell, make me clean, make me whole. He never is doing that. And this is the hypocrisy or the, the legalism of religion. When we worship God falsely, it always leads to injustice because we're using people. Because God is the means to getting that stuff. Not the end Uh, God is the means to getting financial security Uh, That's a common thing that's proclaimed uh, Even in churches That if you just do stuff for God He will give you financial security Or uh, God is the giver of community So if you just worship God enough And if you do the right things in community Then you will have the relationships And the depths of things that you want So God is being used as a means Right? Do you see that? And that always actually leads to injustice. Often other people uh, say that God is the means to changing the world. Not the fulfillment of the world, but just that that God can kind of be on your side and help you make the world as you think it should be. That God is, if if you do this worship, if you do these strategies, if you uh, do everything correctly then you will somehow uh, get what you deserve. And this is called hypocrisy. To sing your love for God when you really only love yourself. When you love the rules of God instead of God himself. When you get really excited about people doing the rules over people discovering who God is. That's how you know. Often uh, when you're doing this, you're thinking... I'm a really good addition to the team. Like, man, it's a good thing God got my gifts and abilities and skills. Like, where would this church be without me here? I mean, we would be destroyed. Thankfully, though, I am here. And then (laughs) he says, I. Uh, The other thing we might say is, it's a good thing that this city has our church. Where would Los Angeles be if it wasn't for us here, right? Like, with our cool, like, statements and our purposes and our identity. Like, if we weren't here living out missional communities really well, like, where would, like, where would this city be? It's a good thing we're here and we're making people do it. Because then what would happen? The, the attitude in our worship of God always leads to using other people. To build our system, to reinforce our religious activity, um, and it leaves them lifeless and used. Uh, Jesus talks about hell quite a bit in his like. You can read his judgment passages; they're actually pretty intense, even compared to the minor prophets. But they're always directed towards religious people, adding burdens to those around them. The religious people have said, yeah, yeah, God wants you to love him and love others. But here's how you do it. And if you don't, we'll shame you, we'll punish you, we'll distance ourselves from you. And that's what Jesus calls out as, that is the best way to ensure judgment on yourself. In fact, the famous line of, it's better to have a millstone, like a huge stone that grinds corn and wheat. It's better to have that turn around your neck and be thrown in the ocean than to get what's coming to you whenever I see you. It's like, that's going to look like, you know, a cupcake compared to what I will do with you. These religious people that add this sort of lifeless using of them. Interesting, though, I've never met anyone who says, as as a self-proclaimed legalist. I've met many people that are self-proclaimed idolaters. Oh, you've heard several legalists? (laughs) Oh, okay. Well, Steve's a good one. (laughs) Uh, But often... Legalists are some other person, right? Oh, that person over there, they're really legalistic. Oh, that person, they're a religious hypocrite. My worship is always true and right before the Lord. Which always, not only leads to the oppression of other people, but of your own soul. I can remember about 10 years ago, I was in Los Angeles for a summer. And I had an internship It was pretty unique. It had me... Uh, hanging out with a bunch of people at USC on their campus But also hanging out with a bunch of people at uh, Union Rescue Mission in downtown LA And I can remember one day we had this really wonderful idea down there on like 3rd and Pedro We were reading the Bible and we read uh, Mark uh, chapter 10, I believe it is Where Jesus tells them to go out two by two And if you, when you come to people's houses, take your sandals off and enter in And we had this wonderful idea. We thought, well, all the people around us are homeless, so their home is the street. So what we should do to kind of like prove to ourselves and to others that we really are radical for God is we're going to take our shoes off and just walk around in downtown L.A. to befriend people. Uh, and so this is what we did. It actually quickly became a contest. The whole internship was kind of a contest. They, it's ironic now, modeled it after The Apprentice. But uh, but it quickly became a contest. You had There was a guy, one of my really good friends, Omar, he's like, well, then I'm going to take my shirt off and my shoes. <laughs> Other people are like, oh, well, then I'll just... Like, look at Omar. Well, I'll take my belt off and my shoes. Uh, it became a quick, like, who can one up the other at doing this incredible work for the people around us where we walk around uh, shirtless and with our shoes off. And so that's what we did. I can remember as soon as we stepped out of the rescue mission realizing this is the worst idea I've ever done in my life. We came to the, the corner, across the street, a lady walked... Uh, carrying all of her possessions. She crossed the crosswalk as me and Omar were because you had to go two by two to really make it legit. And uh, she said, there's AIDS all over this place. What are you doing? Everybody has shoes. Put your shoes on. (laughs) And we kept walking, we saw people, you know, defecating on the corners, we were like, this was such a wonder, like, and then finally we came up to this guy whose name was ironically Christian, and he was in the back uh, alley, uh, which I don't know why we went there, but he called us over. As he was making drug deals and Christian told us, he's like, What are you doing down here? And we're like, Well, you know, Jesus, you know, commands us to be really hospitable and this is what we're we're trying to do, that reverse hospitality thing. And he finally like cut us off in our mumbling and said, We don't need you to come down here and pretend to be Jesus for us. Like we don't need you to come here and and do that for us. Like, if you want to help. Like, be who you are. Come down here and help us. But don't do something to fulfill your own, like, Christian desires. And that moment for me, Omar and I just sort of stood at the court. We're supposed to do it for three hours. That was within the first 15 minutes. And we just sort of sat there with Christian and then realized, oh, there's a chess game happening in the mission. We'll go in there and hang out. Um, What was... What's... Funny and comical about that is also what's sad. That's what we often do with all of our religious practices in our lives. It's, it's about, let me show you how good I am. Let me uh, publish my free will offerings because I love to do it for myself. So that's the other version. If you uh, sort of turn the page over to Amos chapter 5, he says this in 5 verse 5. He says, Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel, do not enter Gilgal, or cross over to Beersheba, which is Jerusalem. For Gilgal shall surely go to exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Here it's God's gentle conversation with them in which he says, All of these other things are empty. Seek me and have life. In verse 6, he says, Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph and it devour with none to quench or for Bethel. And he says, O you who turn justice into wormwood, and cast down righteousness to the earth. See, even then, as he's, he's recognizing, you have turned justice into just rotten, burned-up wood, yet still I'm calling you. Seek me and live. You can, uh, staying in the same chapter, but verse 14, he says, Seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you, As you have said, hate evil and love good. And establish justice in the gate. And it may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to you, the remnant of Joseph. See, lastly, the the only other type of worship is to worship God alone. To seek Him in that same way. To seek God as the only fulfillment of meaning. To seek God as the only provider of comfort, of security, of any lasting hope. And, and for God, it is exclusive. While the idols and other things are totally happy to be in the background. Just whispering and throwing you know, rocks into your life. God is saying, no, it's only me. You can only have me, and that is the only way towards life. But he also connects it. If you see the, the pairing there from verse 6 and verse 14. In verse 6 he says, Seek the Lord and live. In verse 14 he says, Seek good and not evil. The the pairing there is to say, If you worship God, your life will always emulate and produce justice and righteousness. In fact, he says, uh, later in this chapter, he says, Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. He, he calls them and he calls uh, God's goodness and thriving to just come in light of our seeking of God. It will always do that. And this is why the prophets, and you're going to read them a lot, are always coming back to how are you taking care of the poor, the refugee, the widow, the young girl? How are you caring and stewarding their lives? They always come back to it because that becomes the litmus test of, do they really worship me alone or not? Because if, there, if there's injustice, if there's turning aside from the afflicted, then you know. There's some other stuff in there. Because if they worship God alone, they would live and they would see justice. Because God always produces justice in our lives when we worship Him alone. So that was the, this is what the book of Amos is about, especially for the first people that read it. And in each of the prophets, they all end or end with the assumption of there is nothing we can really do here. Like, Can you imagine yourselves today, for just the rest of the day, um, going about your life and not worshipping something else? Just today. Who here wants to do that challenge today? Because the justice and the thriving of humanity depends on you, right? I mean, this is why Los Angeles can be so messed up. You know, there's 14 million of us worshipping 20 or 40 different things. And that's why the injustice exists, right? But maybe just the hundred of us, we could do it for the rest of the day. No one's, like, raising their hands saying, I'm going to do that. Or, hey, let's all, like, just commit for the rest of the day in our missional communities or as a church, in our church activities, just for the last like two or three songs, let's all commit to no religious activity or or hypocrisy. Can anyone do that? The prophets always leave us feeling completely damned. But this is the grace. God does not look at us and say, there are some really important, powerful people out there. They would be a really wonderful addition to the team. They could really help the oppressed and the poor and the vulnerable and the marginalized. Jesus actually looks to us, looks to me and looks to you, and says, there's the poor and there's the powerless. There are the oppressed They're the ones who have had all of these, uh, the the idols that they worship, have pressed them deep into the ground as if they're dead men and women walking. They're the ones that have been used as prostitutes by all these other things. They have a remarkable uh, victimhood into slavery and oppression. They've signed up for it, but they've received it. He looks at us and he says, I will redeem them. Jesus is the one who does righteousness. His whole life is to be the righteousness of God for us so that we can become the righteousness of God. The the punchline of the prophets is not, okay, let's muster up and let's do it. The punchline is someone else must come and make us whole and redeem us because we are the ones that are completely poor, powerless, vulnerable, and oppressed. He makes us righteous in his life and his death and his resurrection. Jesus also looks at us and he says, These scoundrels, these abusers, these selfish consumers, these falsely pious legalists, they're my children whom I love, who I seek to adopt. I'll die for them, I'll purchase them because they are mine and I love them all the way to the end. See, the first step that anyone ever takes into following Jesus is always the step that says, I am the poor and the powerless that cannot help myself. I'm also the scoundrel abuser that's hurt many other people. That's the first step, and that's often many of the rest of the steps is to come to God in a place where He must redeem me, He must restore me. He's the only one that I can find joy in, the only one I can find healing in, security, power, and peace. And that's the irony of it all. We settle for legalism because we think it gives us power and control, when actually the gospel gives us the power to raise the dead is given to us as our lives are raised whole. So in Christ we seek... Um, all of our injustice is consumed in His justice. Our false worship is turned into true worship because God is the one who came and died and took on all the the judgment that is due us to create for us a thriving new world, a new humanity, a new people, a new church that that lives in religious hypocrisy, but is regularly turning in repentance and faith to the only one who can come and mend the brokenhearted. The only one that can heal. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you now um, hearing... The, the hard reality of our hearts and our lives. We come hearing the reality that uh, it's not just uh, our own selves that we hurt, but we hurt those around us by our worshiping of idols. And God, I just pray for there to be a spirit of repentance in us, that we would drop all these other things and seek you as the only way to live and to be alive. God, I pray for your grace to, to abound here in our humility that we would see and that we would know that we are your treasured possession, that you have sought and that you have come to bring life to us. Uh, Father, we pray that we would know you as sons and as daughters, not from anything that we've deserved, but by your wonderful love for us, that we would all be encouraged as we take communion, just the, the heights and the depths of your rich love and mercy towards us. It's your name we pray, Jesus. It's your name that we're thankful for, that you have the power to break oppression. Amen.